Hi there, and welcome to Veterinary Journal Club. Um, we are uh, going to have a talk a discussion um, today. We decided we were going to chat about antibiotics or antimicrobials. Um, so, yeah, that's the plan. It's a pretty broad topic. Um, so, but I think we're going to focus on like when do you prescribe? How do you make decisions? Like, what what's the thought process that goes into it? Is that is that what your understanding was over? Yeah, maybe like what the different drugs are for like what's the difference because there's a bunch of different oh. antibiotics yes like, there yes. oh well, i'll just use an antibiotic i'm going to use name an antibiotic i don't know any antibiotics clavamox everybody's going to use clavamox no metronidazole is actually the one i'm using metronidazole for everything for everything literally everything too hard to remember <laughs> yeah um yeah so okay so first disclaimer oh go oh. ahead disclaimer oh my disclaimer was that um my bias is that, I don't even know if it's a bias, this is actually a statement of fact, uh, veterinarians overprescribe antibiotics. There, I said it, I said it, it happens. Too much antibiotic prescribing. Yeah, and we had not enough a journal club earlier, um, like way earlier. <laughs> uh, that was a paper about... Um, clients' perceptions. Yeah, clients' perceptions, and they were like, ah, if you don't give us antibiotics, cool, whatever, we don't care, yeah, you're a doctor, majority, you know what you're doing. The majority of them would trust the veterinarian's judgment, um, and so it's not that we have to prescribe them because the clients demand them. Which is what most people say. I have a lot of friends that are nurses, and they say, people like, oh, for them. we have to prescribe the, the antibiotic or nope. else the patient gets mad at us. As it turns out, as the doctor, you and only you have the power to prescribe a medication. And a client cannot demand that you prescribe one, especially if they're wrong. Yeah. Um, and also, you can, I know when I go to the doctor yeah. and he tells me to to do something or she tells me to do something, it's like, okay, you're the doctor. Or right. the, sometimes they'll ask me. Yeah, what do you like, think? What, what do like, you think? Wait, like, I don't know. I'm not a you doctor. You went to med school. You tell yeah. me what to do and I'll do it. Oh, see, I, I'm actually the opposite. I'm like, why are you prescribing me two weeks? Yeah, but you're kind of a doctor. What do you mean kind of a doctor? <laughs> I'm actually a legitimate full-fledged doctor better than a... I, like, I'm a real doctor. Yeah. Because real doctors treat more than one species. Yeah. Yeah, I keep telling you. Boom. I do. Frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, but I'm better treat. than most physicians out there. What? I said that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're a physician and you're listening, come on the show. We'll prove it. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, okay. This, this got weird. But anyhow, too much uh, prescribing of antimicrobials is bad um, for your individual patients, but also for the world at large because um, the rate at which we, we, the collective we, the grand we, the royal we, are developing new antibiotics has slowed significantly, um, which means we're running out. We're running out of new options. And um, bacterial resistance is also a real thing. I guess I should probably qualify the difference between the word antibiotic and antimicrobial. Do you yeah. know the difference? No. Antimicrobial maybe means something that like a like alcohol. So all antibiotics are antimicrobials, but not all antimicrobials are antibiotics. So antibiotic um, officially means it's like another life form. Um, biotic meaning it's like a biologic system. So mm-hmm. like um, penicillin, the original antibiotic, because penicillin is based it's essentially a fungus, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's using one life form to prevent the you know 
development of another one. Um, whereas antimicrobial would be like the chemicals and, and like the synthetic things that we've developed. Um, so officially it's a little bit semantics, but antimicrobials is the more, um, kind of overarching inclusive term. So all of the drugs that we use to treat bacterial infections are antimicrobials, but not all of them are truly technically antibiotics but most people so use like them interchangeably antibiotics and it's fine and nobody cares so let's say you're australia and you have a rabbit problem <laughs> yeah. antibiotics are when you get the foxes to come in and take over the rabbits yeah antimicrobials would be the foxes or if you just set up rabbit traps right yeah yeah i like it so it doesn't have to be another life form um mm-hmm. it could be synthetic um just like a chemical or something like that anyhow um semantics. I don't care if you say antibiotic and what you really mean is antimicrobial. Not going to correct you on that one. But that's where the two words are. Okay. So the the kind of most important um, thing to remember when prescribing antibiotics is just, do I need antibiotics? Yeah. Period. Yeah. Why? Yeah. When do you need What them? are you treating with it? Bacterial infections. So if you that's don't it. have a bacterial infection, right. you don't need antibiotics. Exactly. Seems simple enough. However, there's a lot of things that become placeholders for a bacterial infection, such as fever. Not all fevers are caused by bacterial infections. In fact, a lot of non-bacterial infections um, cause fever. Um, And not all infections are bacterial infections. So, you know, a fungus can cause an infection, a virus can cause an infection, and neither of those are treated with anti... Well, um, I guess in, in technically antibiotics might be, but it, it, you'd use antifungals against a fungus and maybe antivirals, although those often don't work, against a virus. Um, but antimicrobials, um, antibiotics are inappropriate. And so um, there are sort of two ways, I guess, there's a lot of different ways we can categorize how you can prescribe antibiotics. Um, but, you know, one way to think about it is I have a known infection, Um like here's an infection, I, I know it's there, I've seen it, maybe I've seen the actual bacteria, or I think I have, um, or maybe I've grown it in a lab, um, done a culture or something like that, but I, like, I know there's some bacterial organism growing where it shouldn't be. Or there's prescribing empiric antibiotics, meaning like I don't know for sure, but I think this is here, and, and, and that's legitimate. There are times when you need to do that. You need to prescribe antibiotics when it's not totally clear that there's a bacterial infection. Is that because it's too hard to find out or because you need to move too quickly? Those are two reasons why you might use empiric antibiotics where you might say, ah, it's, I can't get a sample where, um, I think the infection is. And where would that be normally? Um, there's, there's a few different places where it might be really hard, um, to figure out. Um, or it might even not be hard to get a sample, but to get, uh, an actual, um, uh, the bacteria to grow. Um, so some examples would be like, let's say, you, you know, this isn't a common place to get a bacterial infection, but like a bacterial meningitis. Um, so maybe getting a CSF tap is going to be um, contraindicated in this patient for some reason. Or if you're worried about bacterial endocarditis, um, getting a sample of the heart is challenging. And yeah. maybe if you just sample, what you do in those cases is you sample the blood, and but you don't always grow the bacteria from that sample. So sometimes you have a strong suspicion of a bacterial infection, um, but it's difficult um, to prove it. 
or maybe the patient's just not stable enough um, to get the samples from. Or as you said, you don't, you can't wait. Um, ideally, in a situation where you can't wait, you still get samples and you're waiting for the definitive culture mm-hmm. results and you start the antibiotics while you're waiting for those results. Are those situations a little, like I, I imagine when it's a situation where you can't wait, it's because the infection's moved along so yeah, advanced. Yeah, the it's probably, really sick. You can probably tell. Yeah. Like under just a, a quick market, like you don't need to do a PCR or anything. Oh, we almost never do PCRs. For uh-huh. ours, we're usually actually just growing the actual bug in the lab. It depends if there's a specific um, How bug How do you we're grow the for. actual bug? Well, I don't. Microbiologists do. Uh-huh. Um, but basically, um, you give them food. You, so there's different ways. You can do broth or you can do um, okay. auger plates. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you just take the sample that you think the bacteria are in and you, um, you either spread them on an auger plate or you grow them in broth. And then you, so you just give them food and you mm-hmm. give them time. How long does that take? Um, so, um, if you have a significant enough bacteria, you start to see growth within a day because yeah. bacteria, like, you know, I was talking about breed like rabbits, <laughs> they blow rabbits out of the water when it comes to breeding. So, um, yeah, if you have a decent, um, sample and there's enough bacteria in there, um, and you give them the right nutrients and things like that. They will generally grow pretty quickly. Now, that's going to depend a little bit on the species of bacteria. This is generalizations here. There are some that are harder to grow in the lab than others, and you have to kind of do special things if you're suspicious of certain um, bacterial strains, depending on the infection. But um, for the most part, pretty quickly. So usually within about 24 hours, we would say, okay, yes, we have some growth. And then the next day, um, most most in most labs, um, once you had growth on within 24 hours, then within 48 hours, um, microbiologists are able to be like, this is the species of bacteria that you're growing. And these are the, um, the medications that it is susceptible or resistant to. Sometimes that takes a third day. Now, most labs will not call a sample completely negative for like five or seven days. Um, but in my experience, most of the time, if you're going to have growth, you at least have the start of some growth within a day or so. But there are occasionally samples where it you don't start to see any growth until like maybe yeah. three or four days. And they will report out car- colony forming units. So like how heavy was the growth? Um, but, um, yeah, so it's usually a pretty quick turnaround when all is said and done. Um, obviously if the patient is very, very sick, even 24 hours is too long to wait to start antibiotics. If you think that that could make a big difference, but the, the thing, the the thing that I get frustrated with is when people prescribe antibiotics and there's just not even enough, in my opinion, strong evidence to start empiric antibiotics for a few reasons. One, the animal's not that sick, right? So um, if it's not that sick, then you have time to collect the samples that you want and wait until you see if even there is a bacterial infection. Or um, two, maybe the animal is really sick, but it's got a, a, a syndrome or a disease that we know is uncommonly or rarely associated with a bacterial infection. And like the classic, classic example of this for me would be cats um, with idiopathic cystitis or even blocked cats. Um, less than 5% of these cats that come in with those signs, lower urinary tract signs. And it looks like a urinary tract infection. Anybody who personally has ever experienced a UTI knows like it's miserable for one. You feel like you have to go to the bathroom all the time. You go to the bathroom and it's like drip, drip, nothing goes. And then you're like, oh, I feel good for about two seconds. And then it feels like your bladder's full again. Um, And those are the exact same signs that you get in cats that have sterile cystitis, meaning not an infection, um, but all the inflammation, which is like what you get with the urinary tract infection. But we know that the vast majority of cats that have um, these signs don't have an infection. And yet, 
time and time again, I see veterinarians prescribing antibiotics. And the frustrating part is that those cats get better. You give them antibiotics and they get better. So it's like, see, the antibiotics worked. No. No. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because that cat was going to get better anyway. You just made it sick to its stomach. You might have, yeah. Or you probably changed its gut flora maybe forever, which is frightening and anyway um yeah so uh, i really one of my least favorite phrases in all of medicine is it can't hurt um well if it can't hurt then it can't help so just don't do it anything anything that can have an effect can have an adverse effect say it again anything that can have an effect can have an adverse effect so any drug you prescribe now maybe though you consider there's low risk things like that there is no such thing as prescribing an antibiotic as low risk in my opinion because there's the the direct risk to the individual patient but then there's also the global risk of inappropriate antimicrobial prescribing and yeah and there's times too uh, like if the patient is not at risk so if it's a if it's dying yeah then you can like yeah, take, take a, a crack. Yeah. yeah. But if it's just fine. Exactly. It's like, oh, you can, it's got you can an run owie. the test and <laughs> yeah. wait a day. Yeah. It's not um, going to. Classic example. Another classic example um, would be uh, the animal that comes in, dog comes in and it's having some diarrhea. This is soapbox time for me. Um, sorry. It's a pet peeve of mine. So the dog's been having diarrhea for like a day or so. Still eating, still bright, bouncing around. But boy, is that diarrhea annoying. And the client is like, bah, there's diarrhea everywhere and it's gross and it's smelly and nobody likes having diarrhea on their carpet. Like, get that. Um, And so we prescribe, da-da-da, none other than metronidazole, um, which is an antibiotic and it will alter the gut flora. And in some cases, it might actually appear to help. Um, The diarrhea will stop after you start the metronidazole. But you know what else will cause the diarrhea to stop? Do you have any guesses? Nothing. Time, yeah, which is the same as saying nothing. Um, it's like what you say. It's like when you're a person and you get diarrhea. <laughs> when you're a person, when you're not a person, yeah. When what do you do? And usually, you it's wait. Like, yeah, you just ride it out. Yeah, like you don't wake up one morning and go, Ugh, "My tummy feels kind of funny." You go to the bathroom, you're like, "Ugh, I had some horrible diarrhea." You don't go, "I better go to the ER and demand some antibiotics." Um, and I would challenge people that unless you have a specific underlying condition, you probably have never taken antibiotics for diarrhea. Um, uh, you know, and if you did it, you know, maybe somebody was concerned you had like salmonella poisoning or something, but it's incredibly like, that's not the first thing that comes to your head. But when a, a, a dog comes in through the hospital and has diarrhea, for some reason it comes immediately. It's like, oh, we got to prescribe it some antibiotics and metronidazole is the antibiotic of choice in this situation. And I'm telling you, no, no, put it down, put the prescription pad down, don't put it don't back put on the it shelf. Down. Throw it away. You got to be, be careful with your terms. Why? Oh, not the patient. Put the metronidazole down. It's just diarrhea. No, yeah. No. Put the drugs down. Stop. Put the prescription pad down. Just prescribe a little bit of time. And you're going to think like, oh, but the client really wants something to fix the diarrhea. It's like, they sure do. Um, but sorry, that doesn't exist. So um, appeasing the client by prescribing a medication that has real world ramifications. Like I don't want to be on my deathbed one day um, and be told that I can't be saved because the bacterial infection I have is resistant to all known antimicrobials, including metronidazole. Um, I'm going to curse all of you um, on that day. I just don't, I'd rather it didn't happen. Like we can avoid this. We can be better. Um, the other thing um, and I'm again, it's pretty obvious when you have like a clear infection, the culture is there, blah, blah. We're all good with that. So, so okay. you're talking about um, like a animal that has diarrhea and there's like a 
there's a chance that it has some sort of infection, maybe. Yeah. Um, so how long do they have until the like infection gets too serious two years. for antibiotics? No. Um, so I think there's a few things that um, factor into this for me is one, how sick is that animal, right? So is that animal still eating and otherwise okay? Is a little bit off or is like that animal's really sick? I and mean, if that animal's really sick um, to the point that like maybe it needs to be hospitalized, supportive care, I'm still not necessarily going to give antibiotics right away. I'm going to see, does it respond to my initial supportive care? Because even like really sick animals, like animals that have um, HGE or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, or that's what it's always been called. And then they recently changed the name and it's now called acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome, I think, Um, something like that. Um, It's HGE. It's always been HGE to me, but they had to change the name to something equally vague. Um, Anyhow, but those animals can come in really, really sick. I still don't give them antibiotics right away. I give them fluids because that's what they need to save their lives. Um, and I see how they respond. And if they're not responding to fluids and like other supportive care things alone, then I might consider um, starting antibiotics in that patient because it's not responding to conventional treatments that normally work. And so I worry, hmm, is the gut barrier um, potentially compromised? Are there under- then, then the risk of not giving antibiotics might be outweighed by the risk of giving them. But the animal that comes in even really sick and responds really nicely to fluids, its um, you know heart rate comes down, its pulse quality improves, blood pressure comes up, all of those things. Cool. I fixed the problem with fluids. I didn't need to give antibiotics. And there is actual science to support this treatment plan. Um, there was a nice prospective study um, done, I'm pretty sure out of Utrecht, um, a few years ago where they compared animals that had um, acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome um, or HGE um, and you know those that got antibiotics and those that didn't and the outcomes were the same. So this is backed up by science, not just me being annoyed. Um, it's, it's, it's real stuff there. Um, So I just think there needs to be a strong justification before you're prescribing antibiotics. And um, I guess my question is more along the lines of so. So I have a dog that has the runs. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying I'm not, it's not at the vet yet. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this dog has diarrhea. Mm -hmm. When do you need to start worrying about there being something wrong other than like. Just to need some time and had some, you know bad leftovers. Yeah. Um, so if it's not getting better within like, and I don't mean resolved, I don't mean it's normal, but if it's not like even showing signs of improvement within two to three days, then that might be something that warrants further investigation. Still not convinced it needs antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when you would bring it into the, the that's vet. when I would say, yeah, let's, let's maybe do some tests. Right. So even if, if you um, tell me your dog had some diarrhea this morning, but it's otherwise acting like itself, I'm going to be like, how about we just keep an eye on it? Just like you would do for yourself. Um, still feels like eating, acting normally, then wait it out for a bit. But now it's like, ah, oh, he's kind of lethargic and now he doesn't want to eat. And then it's like, okay, let's come in and make sure there's not something more going on and do some diagnostic tests. But the odds of this being a bacterial infection is incredibly low because do you know what your gut is filled with? Bacteria. Bacteria. Absolutely. And so, um, and they're really good at like actually helping you digest food and keeping you healthy. Like you need these to stay healthy. Um, and this nice mixture of bacteria is incredibly important. They keep each other in check. Um, and so if you give an antibiotic, even if you give an antibiotic appropriately, like an animal needs it because it has an infection and you give an antibiotic, you're going to throw off the normal flora in your gut. Like yeah, that's going to happen. Osmosis Jones, you know that. Yeah. Or if, you know, you showed up for vet school, um, <laughs> you should know that. Or yeah, Osmosis Jones. I don't know what that one is. 
uh, a movie, movie with uh, Chris Rock. It's a cartoon. He's a white blood cell. And then um, I think it's um, uh, who's the guy that played the tick and he's got the voice. Oh, uh, Patrick Warburton. I think it's Patrick Warburton. I could be wrong. He does have a good voice. Um, he's the. Mm-hmm. I think he's the antibiotic. He comes in and he's just like blowing everything away. He's yeah, like the like Patrick Warburton. The cop just like ah, going to town in Oswald and Joe's like, no, we need to figure out who it is. Yeah. And he's like going around getting clues and stuff. And what is amazing? I should see this. Yeah, it's a good this movie. Sounds really good. Yeah. Maybe it's got every- Bill Murray. What? How have I not seen this? I don't know. Okay, we'll have to. Maybe we should stop the podcast. We'll go watch the movie. All right, everybody, we'll go watch. Osmosis yeah, go watch. Jones. Okay, pause. We're gonna go watch Osmosis. Okay, and we're back. Um, it was amazing. It was the best movie I've ever seen. Um, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna watch it one of these days. Uh, just not right now. Anyhow, where were we? So you wait a little bit, and then maybe you do some tests. Like if you think your pet has a true like bacterial infection that it, like bacteria that it shouldn't have in the gut, like salmonella or something, there are tests for that. We can actually get a sample of the poop, send it off to a lab, and be like, "Is there salmonella here?" And then you can say, "Yes, there is." And now we know what specific bug we're worried about, and we want to treat with the and how right long do they have? Um, like how long can a cat or a dog have salmonella and be and be sick? Uh, yeah, and be like not critical probably depends on the case i feel like when people get salmonella it's like it's fast yeah but most people get better without specific intervention Um, i know this from personal experience Mm -hmm. yes many many years ago our family got um food poisoning with salmonella um i was like 13 at the time i thought it was dying literally it's the first time in my life i was like this is this is what dying is um but um most people like yeah just had some vomiting and diarrhea for a few days. And uh, I was young and I also had more than my share of ice cream, which was what was contaminated. And um, and because ice cream is delicious, as you all know. And uh, so I probably had it the worst because I was kind of greedy and young and relatively small. Anyhow, um, it wasn't fun. Uh, I took antibiotics because I was pretty sick, but no one else in the family did. And everyone got better, including me. Um, and I probably would have gotten better without the antibiotics too. Um, it's interesting though. Like I'm pretty sure I was pretty dehydrated and things, but, um, I still didn't, um, like I didn't need to be hospitalized or anything. So at any rate, so it sounds like you're saying that, um, you should have a reason, a known reason anytime you prescribe antibiotics, kind of like if a dog that's been in an accident comes in, you don't just put a cast on its leg because it might have a broken leg. Yeah, it had some trauma. You check and make sure it leg. has a, a broken leg. <laughs> I cast all four legs every time a dog comes in with trauma. No, it, exactly. It, it's equal. You're like, well, this could be caused by infection. You're like, yeah, that doesn't mean it is. So you don't have to know, but you have to have a strong suspicion and not just that there's an infection somewhere. Like you should have a theory of where that infection is because it turns out for a lot of the places where animals commonly get infections, we actually have some good information about what are the kinds of bugs that are likely to grow there. And that can help inform um, your antimicrobial choices. Like you can choose an antibiotic that actually makes sense for the tissue of interest, for the type of bug that is likely to grow there. Um, and so even when you're choosing empiric um, antimicrobial therapy, whether there's a culture pending or not, you can be like, hey, I made an informed, intelligent decision rather than like I threw the thing I always throw at them mm-hmm. and ho- just hope for the best. So can you get an infection anywhere, like on your skin, in your heart? in your eye, in your liver, in your fat. I mean, if yeah, you can. Some places are more common than others. So um, I tend to think of it in ways like, where does your body interface with the world? Because the world is dirty, right? So you have certain tissues that should be sterile, 
um, and others that like are definitely not sterile and some that like always are sterile. So, um, you know, like your CNS, your brain and your spinal cord should always be sterile. So if there's a breach, then, you know, that's how, you know, your skin is actually pretty darn good at not getting infections unless there's a break, right? Like if you cut yourself or you have some other inflammatory condition and now that barrier is not fully intact. Um, so those then it's are, probably not your skin getting infected. It's the, the skin inside. itself. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like the skin is now abnormal and, but you can get, um, like it is still a skin infection, but it is not normal yeah, skin not, at that point. Yeah. It's inflamed tissue. Um, like the urinary tract, your urinary tract should be sterile, but there you have a little exit hole and bacteria can get in and you have normal defense mechanisms that should prevent that in most circumstances. But, you know, it's not perfect and there are risk factors that can increase the chance of getting an infection into your urinary tract. And that can be ascending, meaning coming from the outside in, or if you had um, a systemic or uh, an infection in the blood that then can go anywhere, right? Because blood goes everywhere in your body. And so you can't, or nearly everywhere. And so it can carry an infection to virtually anywhere. Um, but then, um, other places are more common. So the respiratory system, the air we breathe is not sterile. Um, and we have a lot of, uh, protective mechanisms to prevent infections in our airways, but again, not perfect. So that's a, an organ system that interfaces with the dirty environment. Um, the GI tract obviously does interface with the dirty environment, but it is totally set up for that. Um, you know, your food is not sterile, um, but you have, uh, you know, a, a, an acidic uh, gastric juices, so a very low pH in your stomach, and that kills most things, um, helps you digest your food, but also um, helps to keep bacteria at bay. And then, as we already alluded to, there's a bunch of, you know, the quote-unquote good bacteria in your GI tract, and it's really hard for, like, uh, a new bacterium to come in and be like, hey, guys, uh, I'd like to set up shop. And they're like, screw you. There's no room in here. Um, you know, we don't want to short, share resources, um, with you. And, and so it, there's not a, an opportunity for bacteria to get a good foothold in the GI tract. So even though the GI tract is, um, is a great place to interface with the dirty environment, it's totally set up, um, to shut down outsiders. Um, and can it's you ever get an infection from your own bacteria? Absolutely you can. And so those would be what we call like opportunistic infections. So a bacteria that normally wouldn't be considered to cause an infection and it lives, it's a commensal, it's normal, um, but it can either get to a tissue that it's not supposed to be. So it goes rogue and leaves, um, you know, either the skin or the GI tract where it's supposed to live and, and goes kind of bonkers. Or there's some other risk factors you have where that can maybe um, just take the opportunity if you're immunocompromised or something like that. Um, so yeah, your normal flora can kind of go wonky. Uh, it's it, it, Again, usually there's some other risk factors there. Um, so you have to kind of be cognizant of that. So like if you're doing surgery, um, all of the bacteria that live on your skin can now get on the inside and then that can cause problems. You're not supposed to have the, you know, the, the uh, staffs and streps on the inside, um, they're supposed to live on your skin where they do a good job and they're very helpful, um, but not like on the surface of your intestines. That's less good. And so um, we do a lot of things at surgery to prevent those things from happening, but they can because we've created a breach in the system, right? The skin is no longer intact as soon as we make that incision. 
But we have to think about that. Like, do I think this was a surgical infection and therefore what type of bacteria are most likely to be there? Well, I know that streps and staphs, which are gram positive bacteria, live on the surface of the skin. And so I say, okay, well, what's most likely? I should probably choose um, uh, an antimicrobial if I think that's what happened that those would be appropriate for. Is this an anaerobe? Is it an aerobe? Um, you know, if this is a, an infection of the gallbladder, then, you know, I need to think um, anaerobes and gram negatives um, based on uh, research that has been done previously. Oh, but you're also asking about um, one thing I thought when you said, can it be like your normal bacteria? So interesting, um, there is evidence, um, particularly in people, but probably also true in animals that like you have bacteria introduced into your bloodstream, like probably every day, multiple times a day, like maybe every time you brush your teeth, like do you cause little micro abrasions um, and bacteria can like get into your bloodstream um, every time you poop? Um, it is, there's the potential that a few bacteria, especially if you're like straining or something like that, like, Oh, okay. A couple of bacteria maybe, um, breached the, um, defenses and got into the, uh, into the bloodstream. Um, but you're, if you have an intact immune system and it, it gets a small amount and your body's like ready for that. Um, so there, you know, I don't like freak people out, uh, but high risk individuals, those, those could even be potential sources of infection. Um, and then we give medications that throw things off, whether those are antibiotics or immunosuppressive drugs and, and so on. But my main point is, where do you think the infection is? And is that logical? Don't just be like, I think it's got an infection. It's like, where? It's like, well, I don't know. I was like, no, have, have, a, have a thought um, yeah. for that part. Which leg is broken? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't just cat, like, probably one of them. Let me, I'll just not flip a coin. No, we're not flipping a coin. So where, I think the infection, based on the clinical signs or the blood work or, you know, the, the radiographs, whatever tests you're doing, you're saying this is where the animal is painful. I don't know, but come up with some reason, um, some story that, that seems logical that you can tell yourself, it probably picked up the bacterial infection this way, and this is the organ system that I'm worried about. And, you know, this is how it likely occurred. Therefore, these are the, um, the bugs that I'm particularly worried about. Um, so but what are the, the antibiotics that you commonly use? That I commonly use or that everyone commonly uses? Uh, the ones that you know about. How about? Oh, well, there's lots of those. Um, so we'll class them. Like there's the penicillins um, and then there's the regular um, flavor penicillins and then the potentiated penicillins. What so, do they do? Um, the penicillins, they're yeah. really good against um, gram positive bacteria. What's a gram positive bacteria? Gram positive. It's just a, it's it like a, one that has a, the phone, like Alexander Graham. Yeah, exactly. So, You're so smart. Yeah. Um, so this is just, as human beings, we love to categorize things. And so um, basically, gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, they either um, secrete or uh, express, is probably a better word, express a protein on their surface that takes up a certain stain or they don't. And then boom, that's how we categorize gram-positive or gram-negative. And then we have aerobes and anaerobes. So aerobes grow where there's oxygen and anaerobes grow where there isn't. That would make sense. Um, yeah, it's totally logical. So those are like the the four categories, gram-negative and gram-positive aerobes and anaerobes, and kind of lump everything together in there. And in general, when we talk about the antimicrobials, they tend to be good against those different like quadrants. So tends to be good against gram-positive aerobes or tends to be good against gram-negative aerobes. Most things that are good against anaerobes are pretty good against both flavors, um, gram-positive and negative. But... Um, yeah, so we can kind of lump things together because they tend to have similar features. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, the uh, staphs and streps have similar features, and so we kind of lump things together. And so um, amoxicillin with clavulonic acid or clavamox, which is a potentiated penicillin, is pretty good against gram positives and anaerobes. Not so as good like against a, gram negatives. 
what is a gram positive anaerobe? What's like a, what type of infection um, would that be? Oh, so a gram positive anaerobe would be something um, like I would be thinking about that in a gallbladder infection. So a cholecystitis or a, a cholangiohepatitis. Um, so that would be, um, you know, where I would be concerned about that. Or um, the other place that anaerobes will grow is actually like in the mouths of cats and things like that. So abscesses is something else I might worry about anaerobes. Um, and so, yeah, those, those would be the times I'm like, I want to make sure I co- cover for anaerobic bacteria. That's weird that anaerobic bacteria would be in the mouth. That's like yeah, but like that's if you're living like, in saliva and stuff, oxygen there, right? And you can you can actually have anaerobic infections in the lungs, which is a little bit weird. Um, the good news is that um, we haven't. There, there's usually not a big problem with resistance to um, if you choose an appropriate antimicrobial that's known to be good against anaerobes. Uh, the the trick is being suspicious of anaerobes and making sure you're covering for that. Um, and you do have to culture those separately. So wh- as you can imagine, um, you know, the circumstances or the, the environment for the bugs to grow, if it's um, an arrow versus an arrow, you have to not have a bunch of oxygen around if it, it's an animal that, an animal, uh, and uh, uh, a bacterium that grows not in the presence of oxygen. Now there are like facultative anaerobes and things that can be like, well, I prefer oxygen, but if it's not around, I can just adapt. Um, and they won't be as effective at growing, but they can, cause bacteria kind of, kind of cool like that. They're like, meh, I'll adjust. Um, so you have to be kind of mindful and, and, and again, you have to have some suspicion of the type of bacteria that you are worried about so that you can do the right testing and get the right cultures brewing, so to speak. All right, have we have I answered all of your questions? We sort of. Hey, you only did two types of antibiotics, or oh. one type, the penicillin. Oh. oh, that's right. That's what we were talking about. Okay, so then you. Maybe that's all you know. Yeah, that's it. That's all there are. <laughs> um, there are there are lots of others. The other common ones um, that get used in veterinary medicine are fluoroquinolones. Um, they tend to be good against the gram negatives, but they also um, very commonly develop resistance. So enrofloxacin, um, Batril is the trade name of the veterinary approved product, um, is, a, is a good um, antimicrobial, um, or at least it was when it first came out. And it, there was a big push to be like, yeah, this is the greatest antibiotic ever. And people were like, it is. Let's use it all the time. And now we see a ton of resistance to it. Um, so I, those are probably still reasonable for community acquired infections and ones I avoid if I think it could be a hospital acquired infection. I just thought of, so, um, when I think about, uh, like the way bacteria spreads and things, Mm -hmm. I like, I would think the normal person would be like, well, antibiotics isn't a big deal with, um, like say my cat, cause my cat doesn't go anywhere. It just stays inside. So it's not going to spread the stuff. Whereas I can imagine with a cow, like that's going around to the herd and everything are people like yeah. going hanging around and everything. So mm-hmm. how to, there's super, um, how does the bacteria spread if I like, if I don't let my dog or cat go anywhere, I keep them trapped. Oh, well, um, it's lovely to think that even though your, your dog and cat are, are trapped or at least contained, doesn't mean the bacteria are. So every time you pet your cat or your dog or your, your dog licks your face or, I don't know, you touch the surface of something that your animal was on, there's a potential um, for transferring the bacteria. So even though um, your, your pet isn't leaving the house, my guess is that you are and you're interacting with the world, you're going other places and potentially spreading um, those bacteria that have now been selected. 
um, because they're resistant to a particular bacteria. So like we know that um, the resistance spreads around. We know that. Like this, this is established. Nobody, um, I, nobody reasonable um, questions this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, thinking that you can contain it because you're like, oh, I just gave it to my cat, and it's not a big deal. It's like it's one cat. Yeah, that's um, why I think that the normal person would be like, it's like, oh, I don't, my cat doesn't see other cats, so it's not yeah, but the bacteria do. Yeah. <laughs> the bacteria get around. Bacteria are really, really good at getting around. Again, they're living on the surface of your skin, and that's fine because your skin is good at its job. Um, but you don't know about when you then transmit that later to somebody else and you can be like a fomite um, which is just a surface that can harbor bacteria for a period of time and transfer it to somebody else so your clothes um, that's why we talk about hand washing all the time um, you know cleaning surfaces like plastics or telephones your cell phone all of those things so you pet your cat and then you play on your phone and now your phone is covered with that grody resistant bacteria that um, developed because you or your cat got antibiotics either appropriately or not and that's the thing that I, I, I want to stress is that these things are risk even when it's appropriate to prescribe antibiotics it's not that um, it's only when antibiotics are prescribed incorrectly that this is a problem it's a problem even you have to, and, and you do, but we want to mitigate that. Like we just don't want to go bonkers um, and prescribe antibiotics when there's not a good chance that there is a bacterial infection that we can treat with it. Antibiotics save lives. There's zero doubt. Um, but I don't want to run out. And you it, should use the antibiotics when it could save the life, not not just because. Because it makes you feel better. It makes ah, I'm, It's not or it's, it's that It's that cover your ass mentality. Like, oh, I have to give the antibiotics because if I don't and there's an infection, then I'm a bad person. And I would argue that if you are not occasionally having patients come back, that you're like, oh, yeah, it needs antibiotics. And, you know, that's probably when I should have prescribed, you know, a couple of days ago. Then you're over prescribing antibiotics. If that never happens to you, you're prescribing too many antibiotics. That's full stop. Like that you, you should at least sometimes be like, oh yeah, in retrospect, I probably should have done that. But it should be a patient who was stable at the time. And again, you can be like, oh, well, that's okay. Let's say it had like a minor owie. Um, it had a, like, every time you cut yourself or you scratch your knee, you don't take antibiotics. And maybe the same can be true for our pets, right? Um, if they have a little bit of a scratch, um, maybe we can just kind of clean it, keep an eye on it, you know, tell the clients, like watch for these signs. And as soon as you see these things, bring it back and then we can prescribe antibiotics, maybe after collect, cleaning it and collecting a culture. Um, but if you are just like, eh, just, just to be safe, I want to do that. No, if the animal is dying, then yeah, that's the time to do that. Um, if the animal is not dying, if you're sending it home, then maybe you can just wait and see. Or again, if it has something where we're pretty confident, no infection, um, like the cat with lower urinary tract signs, like just, just stop, just stop, stop, stop. Just don't do it. Makes me sad. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason not to do it is because, you know, I will be sad about it. Um, then if that works for you, then cool. Just think about me like sitting in a corner crying and then go, you know, maybe I won't prescribe that today. Maybe I'll just leave it be. I'll make Bobby a little happy. Can you guys do that for me? That'd be, that'd be awesome. Um, do you want to talk about more antibiotics or me crying in a corner or? Uh, do you have more antibiotics? Yeah, there's more. Um, so there are um, the tetracyclines, which we tend to use. Those um, sound fun. Those don't they sound fun? Um, we tend to use those for a lot of the tick-borne illnesses, um, so like rickettsial diseases and things like that. So that's another fun one. Um, we have the cephalosporins, of which there are multiple generations, which makes them sound like a little bit cooler than they are. The tricky thing about the cephalosporins is it can be hard to remember 
um, different generations. So like first generation cephalosporins in general tend to be good against like gram positive bacteria. This is all on Wikipedia, right? Yeah, definitely. Google it <laughs> if you're not sure. Um, and then it, it actually, it is like you can Google this stuff. You don't have to, don't have to memorize all this, but at like you get second and third, and then there's now even some fourth generation cephalosporins. We're, I don't know, maybe we're up to like five or six by now, but um, in general, I, I think of them as like, as I move up the generation or down the generation line, um, I tend to get more gram negative coverage, but that's not actually always true. You have to actually just look at the individual cephalosporin and see what is its spectrum of activity. Um, because like there's some second generation or third generation cephalosporins that are actually really good against gram positives and not very good against gram negatives, but you have a lot of different options there. Um, so that's another big group. Um, you have the lincosamides, you have carbapenems, which are sort of like the penicillins, but like bulkier and beefier and like stronger and yeah, the, the quote unquote big guns. Um, so sounds like there's a bunch of them. Yeah, there's but a lot. What generally are antibiotics? Like what? I'm not sure I get the question. So I'm like, not compute. so it, an infection is usually like a bacteria, some cells that are oh. eating something. Oh, yeah, this is. Then cool. what are the what are the antibiotics? Do? Is it like so? There's is it like two different acid, kinds. or is it another oh. bug that comes in and beats it up and eats it? Sometimes. So that's what like the antibiotics are. That would be, um, like I said, the penicillins, or you know, it's a, sometimes it's competing for resources. Like, hey, I'm going to use up this resource that you need in order to grow, and therefore you can't have it. Sometimes the bacteria actually are destroying, or sometimes, sorry, the antibiotics are actually destroying the bacteria. Um, like the cell wall gets damaged, and then they die. Um, you know, they leak all their goo out, and then they die. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of preventing them from replicating. So you do have um, another way of um, sort of categorizing antibiotics is bactericidal and bacteriostatic. So cidal meaning killing and static meaning just slowing down or stopping the reproduction. And then I guess um, your immune system does takes over with the killing. Exactly right. Um, so, but if we can at least keep it at bay and be like, hey, if you're not replicating, then the immune system can um, yeah. take care of it. So you want to be mindful of that. If a patient doesn't have a very good immune system, you might want to actually choose something that's like um, bactericidal. And again, Google that if you don't mem don't memorize all of it because no, you can't walk around with all that knowledge. Um, and the other thing, and, and this becomes more important, like once you've chosen the antibiotic is making sure that it's being dosed appropriately because there's time-dependent and concentration-dependent killing drugs. Time-dependent meaning that um, particular drug has to reach a certain level in the body and stay there for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I remember to that when effective. I was a kid, there was like a, yeah. we, we always got like this pink liquid. Yeah. And then one day the, the Z pack came out and you're oh, supposed to yeah. take like one pill this day and then two that day and then one and you had to finish the whole thing. And, yeah. some and it seemed like it never worked, but it was very different than just the pink juice. Yeah, the pink juice. Um, it's probably never worked because it was being prescribed for like viruses and crap. Yeah, I forget what it oh, was. Oh, you have a cold? Here, take this out. Uh, I no. think it was usually, yeah, I think it was usually mm -hmm. a virus. I think it was like the flu or something. Yep, take a Z-Pack, even though that is completely inappropriate. Yeah, veterinarians are not the only ones that have been prescribing. I mean, there are study after study after study proving um, that physicians overprescribe antibiotics. Like, a scary amount and we don't have the we don't have the same studies in um, veterinary medicine um but i i would i would put a lot of money on the the bet i would bet a lot of money that we are just as bad collectively um like comparatively bad maybe worse maybe a little bit better i don't know but i'm sure that we're bad yeah so um, how do you decide when an infection's done like Ooh, i fixed it great question i don't know 
and yeah. neither does anyone else. Um, yeah, it, it seems it, like yeah. if you were to like you have a bad infection, you put some antibiotics, and then it looks good, and you stop, it could just come back because the bacteria yeah. is still there. The problem is you don't know. So there's a few ways you can approach it. Um, in in some things, if it's like a common type of infection, then we have some evidence to say this is how long it takes. So for example, in women, if you get an actual urinary tract infection, um, there have been studies comparing a three-day course of antibiotics to a five-day course to a seven-day course, and it turns out three days is good enough. Um, so for women, if you go and it, you find out that you have a urinary tract infection and they try to prescribe you like two weeks of antibiotics, laugh at them and say, no, I'll take three days. Thank you very much. Um, or you can do what I do and just like roll your eyes, take the whole prescription and then throw everything out after the third day. I'm a great patient. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've done my research. Um, so we don't have a lot of those same studies in animals. Um, so you have to think about like, where is this infection? How good is the antibiotic at penetrating into that tissue? How good is the body going to be able to get rid of it? Cause the best thing you can do when you have an infection is go in and clean it out. Like literally it's like washing your hands, but like on the inside. So if there's an abscess, you need to get drain it. If there's a, you know, a, a source of sepsis in the belly, you need to open the belly up and wash it out. Like you need to just hose out the belly and literally wash away as much of the bacteria as you can. Um, and then whatever's left, then you hope that the body's immune system and then some antibiotics can help with that. But whenever there's something you can clean it out, we need to try to do that. We can't always do that. And sometimes we are just relying on antibiotics and the immune system. Um, but if possible, cleaning it out is preferable. Yeah. And can infections last a while? Cause remember, yes, when I was in uh, when I was in college, there was a football player who was supposed to be amazing coming out of high school and stuff. And he got there, and like most people, when they get to college, they like like get amazingly athletic improvement because they have a good diet and good workout plan and all this. And this guy just didn't. And then we got a new coach and new doctors, and they were like, "Oh, you have a staph infection in your leg." Oh, and uh-huh. they fixed that, and he had like an amazing year. Yeah. So um, it depends on a lot of different things, but they can last for a long time. Like, um, so again, like depending on the tissue, like bone infections are notoriously hard to clear. And so sometimes those need to be treated for a long time. Um, We generally recommend treating um, for some period of time beyond the resolution of clinical signs. So like, hey, everything feels good. You shouldn't necessarily immediately stop the antibiotics um, if there was like a clear known infection, treating a little bit beyond that. But the bottom line is we don't know in a lot of these situations and so what ends up happening is people treat for probably longer than they need yeah, to it's, it's probably um, hard to do the research like okay it's we think we cleared hard. up your infection now we're going to cut you open and yeah. check all the cells yeah but again um like in people they've been able to do more of those where they can be like okay you're going to be um prescribed for this many days and we're going to see what happens and um if you're otherwise like it's an annoyance but it's not like a life-threatening issue generally speaking we can try those things but you could also start by saying hey is this a tissue or a fluid that's easy to sample um so i'm gonna i'm gonna start with a culture start the antibiotics and then maybe before stopping i'm gonna reculture whatever source you know tissue or fluid that I sampled. And then I'm going to stop the antibiotics when that's clear. And then I'm going to check it again. Now that's maybe not practical for every case. Um, but until we get more information, sometimes that's reasonable. Say, I'm just going to reculture this, especially if you've had a particularly persistent infection somewhere and you want to be sure you cleared it. Well, it's, you're not hundred percent sure, but try to sample it again and see what you get. I don't know. That's my advice. But the short version is, I don't know how long to treat it for. Not too long, but long enough. Mm-hmm. Goldilocks principle. What else? I feel like I feel like people are sick of this now. <laughs> yeah. 
Do they have an infection talking about antibiotics? Yeah, probably. Don't take antibiotics. Probably a virus. <laughs> you don't need antibiotics. Especially Normal. nowadays. Ugh. And yeah, my favorite is when clients are like, oh, well, she was doing this. So I, I just gave her, we had some leftover antibiotics. Like, why didn't you have leftover antibiotics? And also throw those away. So if you right now know you have some leftover antibiotics in your cupboard or in your medicine, throw them away. Please do me a favor. You can take them to CVS or Walgreens to throw them away. Sure. Yeah. Do that or burn them. I don't care. Yeah. Probably shouldn't throw them in the trash. Why? I don't know. Then some like raccoon will eat them and then get resistant More resistance. That's, yeah. prob- that's probably where most They'll of the resistance comes from is people throwing away their antimicrobials and raccoons are getting them. Yeah. That's what I would do if I was prob- a raccoon. <laughs> we should probably do a study Actually, I'd probably sell them if I was a raccoon. Yeah. That's probably smart. Smell them on, smell them? Sell them on the sell black market. Sell them on market. Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you want some clavamox, is that an Antibiotic? Is that right? Yeah. It's and you buy it on the internet, it's probably a raccoon selling it to you. That'd be weird. Yeah. Trashpanda.com. <laughs> nice. All right, yeah, I think that's enough about antibiotics. Yeah. Okay, so we're all gonna remember we're not gonna over prescribe antibiotics if for the only reason is that it would make me sad. Yeah, and if you prescribe antibiotics, you should be prescribing it for a specific infection. Yes. In a location that you are suspicious it is or you've confirmed it and you say, I think this is the bug. And so this antimicrobial is appropriate for this situation. Mm-hmm. And if the client is like, I just need some antibiotics, you're, you're going to practice everybody with me. We're going to say, no, no. <laughs> good job. No, uh, as it turns out. And they say, but, 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 and you go too bad. And you just give them Pepto-Bismol. Yeah, it can be like, uh, here, actually what I tell people is I have fabli- fabulous news. I don't have to charge you more money. You don't have to take this medication home and shove it down your cat's throat twice a day for the next seven days because who who the heck likes to do that? Your cat doesn't like it. You don't like it. Nobody likes it. So I'm saving you money. I'm saving you scratches and bites. This is fabulous news. You're welcome. Our cat just eats That's, pills. Yeah, He'll take cat. it right out of your hand. Probably. He as long does. as he thinks it's food. What pills are you giving him? Uh, when we first got him, he got some sort of pill. He told me to give it to him. Give him half of one, and I did. Oh, was that probably when he got neutered? I don't know. You just told me to do it. I just do what my vet says. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. Good job. Um, uh, cool. I believe you. It would, I'm pretty sure it wasn't an antibiotic, though. No, I think I it could was, bet a million dollars that it wasn't. It was like a really tiny. We've pill. never, we've never given either of. I don't think I've treated either of them with antibiotics for anything. Yeah. Woohoo! Go me. Practice what you preach. <laughs> okay, that's enough. I think the point. I, I think I made my point. Cool. So. If you want to fight about this, yeah, fight about it. Yeah, come on and we'll disagree. Um, mm-hmm. That's you can email I'll us at you I'm right. Veterinary Journal Club at gmail dot com. Yeah, or comment on Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. at Vet Journal Club. Like this lady's a quack. Everybody needs antibiotics. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. And then we'll block you. <laughs> no, we don't. Block no, anybody. we won't block you. Um, but I will engage you in conversation, and I will try to convince you um, that I am right. With science. Science. I blinded I blinded you with science. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that is all. Thanks for listening. Uh, we will catch you next time. And maybe I won't be on quite such a like dramatic soapbox, but this is something I feel strongly about. So thanks for listening. Um, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.